Would you um, take your copies of God's Word and open to Isaiah chapter 41? Isaiah chapter 41. We'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 10. Isaiah is called the Bible within the Bible because it is filled with major, rich theological themes. He's a prophet of God's sovereignty. There are three main sections to the book, and every section breathes with the vitality of God's lordship, his sovereign rule over all the world. Yet we're told in Isaiah that God is also holiness to the third power, or holiness cubed. He's holy, 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 according to the antiphonal cry of the seraphim. In Isaiah chapter 6, so his holiness and his rule is consonant or in conformity to his character. He's not only sovereign, but he's just and he's equitable. One commentator said that Isaiah is sort of a, sort of an Old Testament Paul in that he calls us in every generation to simple trust in and humble reliance upon God and his promises. And in our text this morning, there are some mighty promises to troubled hearts. And so would you join with me in following in your copies of God's Word as we read Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 through 10. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whose victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes by the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Recent headlines declared hard times have hit the heartland. And um, Owl Powell sitting on a bar stool at the pit stop in Marengo, Iowa, sipping a $2 bud while the Ozark Mountain Daredevils played chicken train on the jukebox, probably summarized it for many of us, if not all of us. There's a world of hurt out there. A lot of folks are hurting. Well, there's a world of hurt in here as well. A lot of us are hurting. The recent uh, events in the markets and the financial crises would suggest that uh, hurt abounds, that fear is at hand, that the thought of financial ruin and collapse is almost overwhelming. Well, the backstory to Isaiah 41 is different, yet it's the same. 
God's people then were facing an overwhelming military conqueror and a conquest with potentially devastating outcomes. They were powerless to control the events that confronted them. We're faced with financial collapse. We're faced with markets tottering on the brink of ruin. And that ruin is felt all the way from Wall Street to your street and to my street. There's no one exempt, no one immune from the investor to the consumer to the retiree who watches his or her life's assets begin to evaporate before his or her eyes. The consumer, the home builder, the seller, the buyer, the small business owner, we all feel the impact of the financial stress at which we're under. In fact, someone said that as the market reaches for a new floor to find its footing, it looks more like a panicked swimmer threshing for the shallows than something that's really being managed. Even uh, skilled veteran investment bankers like um, Erica Johnson de Belgic has said, when we look around, we have nowhere to run. We have nowhere to jump. So what are we to do then? How do we cope? How do we handle it? How do we respond to those uncontrollable events and most feared outcomes before which we are powerless? What do we do? Well, the scripture and God speaking to us in the scripture invites us to trust. He invites us to trust in him and his promises by which we have renewed comfort and hope. He promises to renew us daily, to sustain us daily by his great and precious promises, which are found in this text. And in the text, God also reminds us that he's sovereign over conquering armies. He's sovereign over the 401k and the markets. He's sovereign over the Federal Reserve. He's sovereign over elections. He's the Lord over everything that weighs so heavily upon your mind today. And that's where our hope and comfort is anchored. Not in anything horizontal. Not in the skill and acumen of an economic community. Not in a political party or parties. Our hope and our comfort is anchored in the sovereign Lord God who rules and reigns in unrivaled splendor and glory. And notice because God in the text is sovereign, we see his lordship everywhere. It's like, um, I, I can't remember the technical name for it, but you know, it's like those, uh, those uh, designs or puzzles, those diagrams that you look at and it appears to be chaotic and meaningless. But once you see Jesus or whatever is in the puzzle or in the diagram, you can't see anything else but Jesus. Well, once our eyes are open to the lordship of God over life, you can't help but see it everywhere. And we see it clearly in this text. In fact, we see it so clearly in this text that one could conclude that he's Lord over every arena, over every event, over every spin of the globe, over everything that touches and affects our lives. We literally see his lordship everywhere and we see him working in space and time history in real events in verses two through four. You see, the answer to the two who questions, there are two who questions in the text. There's one in verse two who stirred up the one from the east whose victory meets at every step. There's a who question in verse four, who's performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning. 
The answer, how you answer those two who questions will tell you really something about the source of your comfort and hope. It will determine the source of your strength and it will determine the the endurance that you have, how you answer the who questions in life. The questions in the text are actually tied to historical event. In fact, you'll notice um, in verse 2 that one, an unspecified individual, an unspecified conqueror has been stirred up and he lives in the east. And he's advancing and victory meets him at every step of the way. And before him, nations are being toppled in verse Two, before him, kings are being trampled underfoot so that in effect, he's making those whom he's conquered like dust and like stubble or some translations use the word chaff. In other words, he is reducing them to servitude and next to nothing. And so if you're looking at that, if you're in Jerusalem and you're reading the Jerusalem news press, you see this, you couldn't help but be moved to fear and anxiety and panic. Because you have no power to withstand such opposition. You have no ability whatsoever to forestall the events that are seemingly about to come upon you. Well, the who question is answered with an unequivocal, bald answer in verse 4. Who's done this? Who's given one from the east who initiated and stirred him to action? Who's given him victory? Who has given the nations before him so that kings are trampled underfoot and turned to dust and stubble? Who's done this? Notice the answer in verse 4. I, the Lord, have done it. I, the sovereign Lord, have done it. I initiated the action. I used him as an instrument or a means to accomplish my ends. And the ends are not pleasant and the ends are not palatable. In fact, as a result of this stirring, as a result of this initiating activity of God, notice in verse four that the, verse five rather that the coastlands have seen and are afraid, and the ends of the earth tremble. The response of God's hand, working through real historical events, causes pervasive fear, pervasive anxiety, pervasive panic. I'm the one that's done it. In recent days, I, uh, I've been riveted, riveted to certain newscasts. And um, I, um, I read widely anyway, but I've read even more widely and even more deeply in areas that I would not normally venture into. In fact, my wife Melinda has become um, somewhat agitated by my uh, prolonged curiosity about markets and economics and free markets versus uh, free trade versus fair trade and and all those kinds of things and Eric Krigler has given me a book called Common Sense Economics and I've got Thomas Sowell's book The Origin of Visions on my desk at home I've become uh incurably almost um inquisitive about the whole thing who is responsible for this when I open my 401 and I watch it diminish I want to know who is responsible for this. Well, Anderson Cooper on CNN has come up with the nightly, the 10 most wanted culprits for the financial collapse and crises. And there's a real hall of infamy on that list. Take your pick. Come up with your own names as to who is responsible. But I can tell you who's not on that list. is the sovereign Lord who governs the markets from the opening bell to the closing bell. The sovereign Lord who who upholds all things by the word of his power. 
The sovereign Lord who sees the sparrow when it falls to the ground. And while I'm looking for horizontal, horizontal human enemies to level my fear and my anxiety at, this text comforts my heart and reminds me that history and history makers and map changers ultimately are in the hands of the sovereign Lord who does with them and through them according to his appointed end. And sometimes that appointed end is beyond our understanding. We cannot really humanly comprehend it. One Puritan, John Flavel, said providence is best read backwards. And that really is true. We don't see it at the moment. We don't feel the good of it at the moment. Fear overrides what we believe. And our, our hearts are thrown into a quandary as, we, as all of this begins to sink in upon us personally. But the truth of the text is and the truth of the scripture in both testaments is. That God uses instruments. He uses crooked sticks to strike straight blows and to further all of history, yours and mine and world history, steadily onward to his appointed and sovereign end. But his sovereignty tempered by his holiness, by his character, by his purity, by his wisdom and by his power. So in the midst of market crises, in the midst of our own financial struggles and stress. You know, we've walked on a green road from Wall Street to My Street for a long time, but suddenly the green road is collapsing beneath us. And while we're looking to level accusations and blames at politicians and parties and economists and rogue investors on Wall Street, let's not forget that none of this has caught our Lord by surprise. That God is working through real agencies and real means to accomplish His grand and glorious end, which at the moment is obscured from our understanding. So God, grant us grace. Oh, Father, grant us grace to respond with spirit-enabled gratitude that this world and my world and my home and my family, and my money and my health, and my job and my houses, my lands and my property are not my own. They're ultimately yours and they're in your hand. From the smallest particles of matter in the furthest galaxy to the opening bell to the closing bell, it's all his. The Lord speaking through the prophet in Haggai says to his people, The gold and silver is mine. Speaking through the psalmist in Psalm 50, he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Speaking through the psalmist in Psalm 24, he says, The earth and the world in all its fullness is mine. And when we worship the Lord, and that's what it is, when we write the tithe check, when we give our offerings, it's an act of worship. When we write it and when we place it in the offering plate, we're acknowledging in a very small way in this act of worship that I am yours and you are Lord and source and provider over all that I have. And in recent weeks and in recent months and perhaps in weeks and months ahead, I'm reminded that ultimately my sustenance is not dependent upon MBAs from Harvard 
It's dependent upon a God who knows how to clothe the lilies of the field. It's dependent upon the sparrow whom he feeds. It's dependent upon the lilies whom he adorns with far greater glory than Solomon and all of his wealth could manufacture. We are in the hands of the living God. And listen, it's a scary place to be. And it's a comforting place to be. Scary because you're no longer in control. Scary because another is calling the shots and managing your life and your portfolio. But it's a comforting place to know that he will not leave you and he will not forsake you. When Jesus was comforting his worried and beleaguered disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he tells them not to fear what tomorrow may bring. He punctuated his point. He illustrated it by pointing to the birds of the air. And he said, you know, God takes care of them. Will he not take care of you? He pointed to the surrounding flowers in the field and he said, God sustains those flowers. Will he not also sustain you? Will he not take care of you? Your response and my response to the who question, who is responsible, will determine your level of comfort and hope. If you believe that ultimately all of this is in God's hands, you will have a steady, you will have a steady undergirding source of strength and confidence and hope. That you're not really left to the whim of the reserve, to the Congress, to the local politician, to the customers in your place of employment. Ultimately, you're dependent upon a sovereign Lord who's made you his own by the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus. When my children were very small, we had a little bit bigger yard than we currently have. And uh, Melinda surprised me one year by buying... Uh, actually, it was a, a three-part deal. My parents, Melinda's parents, and uh, Melinda surprised me one year with a, a riding lawnmower. Uh, and I thought, wow, what a luxury. I don't have to push anymore. I can ride. Uh, I found myself cutting yard more often, uh, by the way. Um, and the kids, I would get the kids. They were very small. I'd get the kids on my lap and wouldn't have the blade going. For some of you, automatically think, well, that's not safe. The blade would not be going, but I would get them on my lap and they would put their little stubbly sausage-like fingers around the wheel and I would put my hands over theirs and I would say, okay, take me for a drive. And so my hands over theirs, I was actually steering and controlling, but they would laugh with glee because they thought they were in control of this big, long tractor. Can I tell you whose hand's really on the wheel? Can I tell you who's really guiding and governing and leading to his determined end, ultimately for his glory and our sanctifying good? The hands of one mightier than I. The hands of one mightier than you. The hands of the sovereign Lord, our God and our Father. So we ask him, oh, Father, give us Sustaining grace. Give us a renewed comfort and hope in the midst of our loss. Because God is sovereign, we humble ourselves before Him. The, the, the text uncovers unbelieving responses to God's frowning providence. You know, we, we honestly, folks, we need to ask God for grace to intelligently and specifically repent where the Holy Spirit convicts us of pride and anger and self-reliance, where he convicts us of our greed and our misspent prosperity, 
for our reliance on every false comfort and every false hope other than himself. The text uncovers unbelieving responses to God's providence. In verse 5, some are so afraid they panic in despair. In the Great Depression, people were jumping out of windows because they'd lost everything. This past week, Joe Lazari, who uh, was an independent trader in Chicago, 44-year-old man with wife and children, lost more than money. He lost his life. He took his life at the end of a pistol, a gunshot in the mouth, blew his brains out in a parked car just down from his place of employment. He left his wife a brief note, I've lost it all and have no hope of recovery. I just read this past week that Japan is on heightened suicide alert. They have the highest suicide rate of any industrialized nation, over 30,000 a year. People, over 30,000 a year, people in Japan take their lives. And their own heightened alert, psychiatrists, psychologists, medical professionals, counselors. Because the losses there are so devastating that people have, have lost any hope whatsoever and see no reason to live. So some respond to God's hand with fear and panic and unbelief. And then others in verse 6, they look to and trust in something horizontal, you know, renewed self-help and renewed effort. Maybe maybe they go to Barnes and Noble and they read Rhonda Burns' book, The Secret. But I figure if it's in a book, it's no longer a secret. And if it's a bestseller on the New York Times, it's no longer a secret. It's like you know, the, the subscriptions and the magazines you receive that says uh, eight secrets. Well, millions of people are going to read them. It's no longer a secret. Maybe some resort to some kind of metaphysic hokum to sustain them. Maybe other people buy uh, Eckhart Tolle's One World and turn into some kind of transcendental mush. And then other people just develop new strategies to survive and cope. Still others in verse 7 renew their blind hope and confidence in idols that have already failed them. You notice in verse 7 that they strengthen themselves. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. In verse 7, he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Oh, the folly of trying to secure idols. Oh, the folly of trusting in that which is made out of rotten wood and will decay beneath our feet. But they renew themselves and pour their energy into further idol making. Now, I don't think anyone here is in danger of forging idols on hammer with a ham, hammer and an anvil. I, I don't think that's our problem. That's a crass form of idolatry. We would... We would never be guilty of that. No, the, the idols that grip our souls are hidden and much more refined. And maybe part of the shaking that's taken place is to turn our attention more fully on the sovereign Lord. So might we ask God for grace to trust Him? Just like the old hymn, Oh, for grace to trust Him more. Oh, for grace to acknowledge that He gives and takes away, that He appoints both our prosperity and our adversity. Oh, for grace to rest in his grip. A market reporter for CNN in a moment of unusual candor recently said the markets run on two things. They run on fear and they run on greed. Guys, we cannot sustain our life on fear and greed. It's unsustainable. It's unsupportable. And the life that honors the Lord, the life that pleases him, is founded upon something far better 
something far more enduring, something far more secure and stable. He calls us to a faith and a stewardship in response to tough providence. He calls us to renewed confidence and hope and comfort in his promises. So in the latter part of the text, because God is sovereign, we believe that though we lose everything, we've really, in fact, lost nothing. That he will sustain us in the face of incredible, overwhelming losses. Look at verse 8. God reminds us that in the midst of this conqueror, in the midst of this coming conquest, in the midst of events and outcomes over which we have no control and that threaten to overwhelm us, God does something very remarkable in verse 8. He reminds us that we are his, that he has chosen us. That we're his servants. Read it with me in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So as God's providence blows an old wind, what God is reminding his people is, That you belong to me. Your relationship is secured by omnipotent grace. That you are my servant. And I will not forsake you or let you go. You think about that today. God's providence churns and advances. And it's not always to our liking. It's not always filling us with joy. Sometimes it's peace-depriving and joy-innervating. But in this verse, God reminds us that I will sustain you where my providence takes you because you're mine. We're his servants. There's a wonderful picture of this in the Psalms of where the psalmist David is saying that I sit and wait on the Lord as a servant waits on his master. So we don't know where this is going. We don't know when this is going to end. We don't know where the floor really is. But in the interim, we remind ourselves that we are his servants chosen by grace, that he owns us, that he has secured us, and that he gives us himself and will sustain us in times of dark and frowning providence. There are 13 personal pronouns in the latter part of of these verses, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. I and my emphatically stating over and over, God is speaking words of comfort to his troubled people. He's renewing their hope and their confidence, not in themselves, not in their idols, not in one another. All of that's being stripped away. Every source of help is being removed. And in the midst of the powerlessness, he is saying, I am with you in your weakest moments. I am with you in your darkest nights. I am with you in every loss and every collapse. And I will sustain you and I will be more than you need. We are living, breathing persons marked by God's indelible grace. John Flavel was right when he said providence is best read backwards. He was exactly right. We don't see it at the time. You know, I read the newspapers and and I don't see the Lord's name in there anywhere. I watch uh, Lou Dobbs at 6 o'clock while I eat dinner and I don't hear Lou invoking the sovereign Lord much, if at all. I've seen all the debates and I've yet to hear the name of the risen Savior invoked in any of them. But let me tell you what we do know on the basis of this book. For example, Romans 15 says that the things in the Old Testament were written for our comfort and our consolation. So let me tell you what we do know. For example, from Isaiah chapter 41. 
Nobody comes from the east and subdues nations and topples kingdoms and grinds kings under their dust without the Lord's permissive will. It just does not happen. I initiate it, and the outcome of that is fear and anxiety and panic, and I'm behind that too. And behind all of that, though, he whispers to his people, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because I am with you and you are mine. Providence is read backwards. Turn over to chapter 44 for just a moment. A few chapters later, some years later, this unspecified conqueror coming from the east is identified. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. Um, well, let's start, um, let's start at um, verse 24. Isaiah 44 verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread out the earth by myself. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. And who says of Cyrus... That's the unknown, unnamed conqueror in Isaiah chapter 41, who says of Cyrus, he's now named, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Look at Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him. That gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord. Guys, there's no doubt. There's just no doubt that the one who gave the success and caused failure on the other hand... The, the, the origin of the fear and the panic, although recognized then as human instrumentality, was actually an instrument of God's choosing to accomplish God's intended end. I wouldn't presume to tell you today what the, what the intended end is for the catastrophic losses that some of you have experienced and others are in the midst of experiencing. I, I could not presume to tell you what that end is because I don't know the mind and counsel of the Lord. But I do think And I say this cautiously, I do think I understand from this text that ultimately you have to rest in the knowledge that God knows exactly what he's doing, though we cannot understand it. And though we cannot understand it, you also have to believe that God has brought you into a relationship of grace, that he is your savior, your redeemer, your sustainer, your keeper, and that he will give you grace to persevere in tough days and in tough times. And if that's not enough, turn back to Isaiah 41.10. If that's not enough, the text closes before us this morning in verse 10 with God giving very powerful personal promises to sustain us while he works out his purpose in the world. The Hebrew text heaps up these promises, stacking them one upon another, leading us to the security of God's faithful integrity. The end of the text we've read this morning 
says that I will, God says to you, I will uphold you with my righteous, that is my faithful right hand. You can count on me to fulfill all of my promises and to do all by you that I've promised to do. In other words, he promises his presence to us, eliminating fear and giving us confidence in fearful days because he will go with us wherever his providence takes us. He promises supernatural help and strength. The Hebrew grammar uses perfect tenses. All that means is that God's very determined. He's very, very determined to uphold you, to sustain you, to strengthen you, to help you, to uphold you all with his righteous right hand. When I was a child, I was very afraid of the dark and very fearful at night when I went to bed, particularly after watching scary programs. It looks like I would have learned my lesson, but, you know, I was four, five, six. Okay, I was 12 or 13 years old. And uh, so I would go to bed and, and, uh, and literally become terrified while I, while I was in the bed. I think I spent more time under the covers, under this vain notion that if I'm under the covers, I can't be seen. They won't find me and therefore they won't hurt me until I would finally have to come up for air. Many a night as a four-year-old boy paddling down the hall to mom and dad's room and saying, I'm scared. Because at night things seem worse, don't they? When it's dark, things always seem worse. You know, the shadows in your room become imagined tormentors and sources of unspeakable horror when you're a child. I'd paddle down the room to mom and dad's room and I'd say, I'm scared. And they would respond with this. You have nothing to fear. We're right here with you. And we're not going to let anything happen to you. I'd paddle back down the hall because I knew I was not alone. There was someone bigger, stronger, more powerful than me in the house. And whatever those shadows threatened, there was someone down the hall who would step in and take care of me. Are you afraid? Are you apprehensive? Are you anxious? As you've watched a lifetime of sweat equity totter on the brink of collapse. Are you retired? You've worked hard all of your life. And now you're watching that 401k be depleted by mechanisms and decisions over which you had no control. Are you looking for meaningful employment? Are you worried about your kids going to college? You behind on a mortgage payment. Have your kids been in private school all of their life and now I don't know if they're going to be able to stay there. Can I tell you that there's one bigger than you and bigger than I who's in the house. And he's given you unshakable promises that I will be with you in the days to come. And I will sustain you and I will keep you and I will uphold you. With my righteous right hand. Folks, that's our only source of comfort and hope. Is that his hands are on the wheel. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. We are so grateful that you are not only a mighty God. A powerful God. 
but by the person and work of the Lord Jesus, you are our gracious Father. And I pray that through the very personal ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives today, that we would feel the good of this. We would feel the comfort of it. And that day by day we would feed upon these promises. We would soak our hearts in them. So that as we see the circumstances and the markets and the financial world unfold, it would all be filtered through our faith and not through our unbelief. That though you're at work in ways we cannot understand, though you're at work in ways that may unsettle and unnerve us, we're confident that you will keep us and sustain us because we're your people by indelible grace through the finished sufficient work of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.